When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Last week, the Supreme Court began its new term, and the longest-serving justice there is Clarence Thomas. He's beginning his 29th year on the court, and of course, he's also the most right-wing, and of course, he's also the only black person on the court. He's the man who's the most committed opponent of affirmative action the biggest defender of restrictions on the right to vote. He's to the right even of the other conservative justices on stripping the protections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He's a big defender of the police in the prisons. He opposes limits on campaign spending. And he officiated at the third marriage of Rush Limbaugh. We think of him as a black man who does the bidding of the Republicans. So... Is he self-hating? Is he a sellout or what? For that, we turn to Corey Robin. He says we don't understand Clarence Thomas. He's not a sellout and he's not a self-hating black man. He's something else. Corey is a professor of political science at Brooklyn College and the City University of New York Graduate Center. He's a contributing editor at Jacobin Magazine. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, The New Yorker, Harper's, and The Nation. His last book was The Reactionary Mind. Now he's got an important new book out. It's called The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. Corey Robin, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be back. Well, you say there's a secret to Clarence Thomas, one that's been hiding in plain sight. What is it? It's that he's a conservative black nationalist. Um, he, When Clarence Thomas was younger, he was actually a black nationalist on the left, um, for for a, a number of years. And then as he made his migration to the right in the mid-1970s, um, although he adopted some new beliefs, he never really gave up the some of the core tenets of his black nationalism of his younger years. And in particular, he never gave up, first, the belief that black people have a set of interests and uh, a kind of destiny in America that simply cannot be accommodated by mainstream uh, white institutions. Uh, secondly, that black people should, as a result, look to their own uh, communal institutions and modes of self-organization um, and try to find a way forward, or at least not a way backwards, um, that lies outside of the sort of mainstream white institutions. Okay, his jurisprudence at the court is defined by this understanding of the interests of black people, but then... Why doesn't he think black people should fight for those interests through voting, through winning political power? So I think it has a lot to do with when he came to political consciousness. Um, he comes uh, he comes to consciousness um, politically in the in the waning days of the black freedom struggle, when there is an increasing sense of defeat uh, that uh, that politics is really a kind of closed path uh, to to black people. That white people will always win in the end if you try to achieve your aims politically. So 
you know, from, from the beginning, he really has eschewed a kind of, of a political path. And he thinks things like voting, all the kind of conventional instruments of political progress or political advance are really a misbegotten enterprise that they will not do very much for black people and may actually positively harm black people simply by reinforcing the power of white people. So he, so even though he's very dedicated uh, in his mind to the insurance of black people, he believes that politics, the state, collective action of a conventional sort, that none of these are um, adequate instruments or avenues for black advance. So what about what we called the Obama coalition? Black people join an alliance with other people of color, with young people, with women. In 2008, that coalition got more votes than any presidential campaign in history, and it elected America's first black president. Uh, Clarence Thomas always voted against the initiatives of America's first black president. What's his problem with the Obama coalition? I mean, I think he would point to the fact that uh, black interests weren't really significantly uh, advanced by that administration. Now, there's all kinds of reasons one can come up with for why that is. I don't I'm not interested in litigating that, um, but I think he would point to things that black home ownership rates uh, are now lower than they were uh, when Obama took power, um, and you know the black wage continues to decline. Uh, I mean, sorry, continues to be short of the white wage, and so on and so forth. So, um, I think things like the election of black politicians, you know, I don't think really would impress him. And I should say, this is very much in keeping with a lot of the realization that black activists had in the early 1970s. Um, you know, at the things like the Gary Convention, it was you know very clear to many people that uh, in, in 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 the early 70s that simply you know voting for black uh, officials wouldn't necessarily do that much to transform um, the sort of the vast estate of black people in the United States. Well, okay, so I understand it is a it is a radical idea that Obama won only because he he did the things that were required by the white elites in the in the white media. But what about gerrymandering? He doesn't think that ending gerrymandering will really help black people. Why not? Well, because he thinks gerrymandering, because it's going to be a state practice, is going to happen mostly through uh, state elites, whether it be courts and judges or state legislatures that are overwhelmingly white. Um, and his view, I mean, he's developed this at length in, in one of his opinions, Holder v. Hall, which is an early voting rights opinion. Um, he thinks those kinds of mechanisms, mechanisms and machinations uh, to try to you know, enhance the power of black people will always depend upon white elites and whose, whose views are whimsical and ever-changing. Uh, and so he doesn't think it's a particularly secure path. Uh, for black people. And, you know, if anything, I think he would say, you know, you end up uh, sort of sequestering black people into, you know, majority districts, uh, and then they actually end up having less leverage um, as a result, as opposed to if they were to pursue other avenues outside uh, of the state. So he's, you know, very much against, um, you know, any kind of uh, racial gerrymandering that would um, advance the cause of black people. And insofar as gerrymandering advances the cause of white people, for him, that just confirms, you know, the fundamental attributes of the state, which is that it will be the sphere of white people. So either way, I think he sees, you know, gerrymandering, whether it's on behalf of African-American interests or not, as simply reinforcing the power of white people. And what exactly is his criticism of affirmative action? Didn't he benefit from affirmative action? Yeah, and, you know, he admits that he benefited from it. And I think, 
his criticism begins in part from that, which is that he uh, has felt that white people have constantly reminded him um, of the fact that, that he benefited from affirmative action. And so his experience at Yale Law School was a very formative experience for him. And Thomas was really used to the experience of kind of overt white uh, racism that's, you know, uh, uh, the, con- the conventional sort. And at Yale Law School, he encountered a different kind of racism, what we might call, you know, white liberal racism, whereby the white person um, would do something on behalf of black people, like affirmative action, and then would remind black people that they were only there because of the beneficence of white people. And so for him, affirmative action is kind of a poison pill um, that uh, changes the face of white racism slightly, uh, but adds this kind of, you know, sort of paternalistic element to it um, that ends up in the minds of white people, confirming that black people can only advance with their help. And he says this applies to people with black people, whether they get, you know, do advance under affirmative action or whether they don't advance under affirmative action. It taints the achievements of all black people, essentially, much in the way that both segregation and enslavement, whether people were black people were free or enslaved, uh, tainted all black people, as he as Thomas puts it, quoting Plessy versus Ferguson with a badge of inferiority. Uh, so it's a very different account of affirmative action from the kind that you find in many conventional conservative accounts. His argument about eminent domain is pretty revealing. This is where the government acquires private property for public use. Republicans have been obsessed uh, with eminent domain because they see it as a contest between property rights and a big government trying to uh, take away people's property rights. And Clarence Thomas has supported the Republican position opposing eminent domain. But why? Because he, rather than seeing it as a contest between big government and property rights, he sees this as a contest between white government and black people. Um, this is developed in his uh, in his dissenting opinion in the Kelo decision, uh, the Kelo versus New London. And there he, he, he studies eminent domain through the lens of urban renewal progr- uh, programs in, in, in the United States from the kind of mid-century uh, perspective. And he says, if you look, you know, and he, he quotes James Baldwin's famous claim that urban removal means Negro removal. Um, and he says that, you know, what, what the use of eminent domain and the name of urban renewal meant was constant dispossession of black people from their homes and the sort of the movement of black people out of their communities. And so uh, by the end of his opinion, you know, he really sees eminent domain as a liberal form of ethnic cleansing. It's a way of, of clearing city spaces of black people. And he says um, that black people will always be the victims. Black and poor people will always be the victims of eminent domain because they have uh, the least political power on the one hand, and they also have their homes are always valued less uh, on the market uh, because they tend to be poorer uh, than the homes of wealthier white people. So they are always going to be the kind of um, make very attractive targets for white urban reformers um, who see the, the movement, the clearing of black people out of white spaces as a condition for urban renewal and urban thriving. And so for him, um, it's, it's a very distinctive approach to this question of eminent domain. And I think it reveals sort of how systematically race conscious he can be um, in his approach to standard conservative arguments, even if he comes out on the same side as conservatives. And he's also very interesting on 
the Second Amendment debates, uh, uh, of course, uh, gun rights we see as the cause of uh, white nationalist militias who have these fantasies about uh, rebelling against the socialist government in the United States. Uh, Clarence Thomas uh, votes the same way as the conservatives on the definition of the Second Amendment, but for different reasons. Yeah, absolutely. So Thomas really roots his understanding of the Second Amendment um, in the experience, uh, in, in, the, in the long struggle over emancipation of slaves, of enslaved African Americans, uh, and then the sort of retrenchment against that uh, in the aftermath of Reconstruction. Um, he sees at the heart of the struggle uh, in emancipation, um, one of the key desires that black people had was to be able to arm themselves against white people. And he reads the 14th Amendment and the Second Amendment in tandem as establishing that as a fundamental right for black people. Um, and it's a fascinating decision. It's the McConnell, McDonald versus uh, Chicago decision. And I mean, it's, it may be, I don't know this for sure, but my hunch is it may be the only decision, I'm sorry, opinion in which a Supreme Court justice is affirmatively citing from Herbert Apthecker's work <laughs> on slave revolt as opposed to Herbert Apthecker as a protagonist in a case. Um, and, uh, you know, Thomas draws extensively from Apthecker's work and just shows, again, how important um, black self-defense and black self-arming was to the, to the project of black freedom. And, and he closes that, that opinion with this very resonant image of, a young, uh, of an older man re remembering when he was a younger boy, a black man, uh, remembering as a younger boy um, uh, his father protecting the family with a gun against a kind of uh, a marauding white mob coming to the house. And, you know, Thomas, you almost, I can't remember the specific language, but it almost uses the language, he says it's something like an image of salvation. And, you know, it, this is, if, you know, when you know the history of sort of black radicalism, um, this is a very resonant image on, on the black left of black men arming themselves. Um, Elaine Brown, in fact, wrote a whole song about this uh, that's not very well remembered. Elaine Brown, who ended up heading the Black Panthers, um, uh, talking about black men arming themselves and that really being the symbol of freedom. And Thomas does the, almost the exact same thing in this decision defending gun rights. Okay, so if for Clarence Thomas, politics, voting, is not the way blacks can advance their interests and protect their communities, what does Clarence Thomas think black communities should do? He very much believes uh, that black communities should focus their attentions on the economy, uh, particularly on the institutions of capitalism. Uh, now, I should say that um, when Thomas comes to this idea in the mid-1970s, there's already a firmament, on, even on the black left, the black nationalist left, black power groups, uh, you know, away from politics, away from the state, towards experimenting with the economy and experimenting even with capitalist institutions. And so that's the milieu in which he comes to these ideas and starts moving to the right. Um, there's also an autobiographical element to this, I'm sorry, a biographical element to this for Thomas, which is that his grandfather, 
who was a very formidable and important influence on his life, on Thomas's life, um, was a kind of a black, um, you know, uh, business owner, and built up, you know, quite a business for himself, and became a pillar of the Savannah black community. Um, and Thomas really sees black men, black patriarchs, um, amassing wealth um, in niches of the economy that are not uh, addressed by white people. Uh, and then being able, through the amassing of wealth in those niches of the economy, a black economy, uh, to be able to distribute those resources to other black people. And that, for Thomas, um, is really the path. Again, I wouldn't say forward. Thomas doesn't have really a vision of forward movement, but it's certainly a vision of black maintenance, let's say, um, that you organize yourselves through the market um, separately from white people, amass wealth, uh, and and kind of distribute it to the black community. And of course, we have to talk about Anita Hill. You say that confrontation is what you call the Rosetta Stone of Thomas's understanding of the Constitution. Please explain. So Thomas has, at the heart of his vision of the Constitution, and I, and he has two different visions of the Constitution, one I call the white Constitution, one I call the black inst- Constitution. But at the heart of both visions is this figure of the black male patriarch. Thomas has said that the salvation of the black race depends upon black men. And in his vision of a Constitution, it's, it's almost an ancient idea of a Constitution, not simply as a legal body of rules or kind of basic rules of, uh, of the government, but really as the kind of the constitution of the social order. That's really how he understands a constitution. And at the heart of the social order that he wants to create are black men. Um, and it's, again, it's a very patriarchal vision. Um, there is very little space in that vision for black women. The role of black women is to essentially be the dependence of black men. Um, and, uh, Insofar as they, black women appear in any other guise um, in, in his vision, they appear as kind of traitors, people who are dangerous because they ally with white liberals. Uh, and so Thomas had been developing this theory um, throughout the 1980s before he comes onto the court. And you see it in his, in his writings and his speechings, the centrality of black men, um, the sort of black women being kind of off the stage as sort of passive, passive recipients of black male um, uh, uh, benevolence. And insofar as women, black women play any different role, as I say, they're kind of treacherous figures. Um, and, but, but creating black male authority is very important. And then along comes Anita Hill. And um, as I say in the book, you know, it's, I think, evident to anybody who's a dispassionate observer that Anita Hill was telling the truth uh, and that Thomas was lying when he denied um, sexually harassing her in the way she claimed. However, in his response to Hill, when he sort of has that um, outburst about being the victim of a high-tech lynching, um, comparing uh, Democratic senators to the KKK uh, and other white supremacist groups, I think most people who know Thomas well would say that in many ways this was a very authentic moment for him where he was telling his truth. He was lying about what he had done to Anita Hill, but he does really see a black woman in alliance with white liberal groups as a very dangerous figure because what she will do is undo black male authority. And when black male authority is undone, um, the whole black community crumbles with it. 
So in a way, the Anita Hill confrontation was an extraordinarily revealing moment, not simply of what Thomas had done in his character and all the rest of it, but also of what he fundamentally believes, which is that the place for black women is to be, as I said, the kind of passive recipient of black male largesse and benevolence. And insofar as black women do anything else, step outside of that role, they are undermining black male authority and with that, the black community. Okay, let's connect the dots here. Clarence Thomas's position on the law come from his understanding of history and politics, but how does that lead him to ally with Alito and Roberts and Gorsuch and the horrible Brett Kavanaugh? These people are not black nationalists, but they sign yeah. at least some of his opinions. Right. So I think there's a couple of you know, ways of looking at this. Um, the first is that one of the things Thomas develops early on is a theory of what I call racial sincerity. Thomas does not believe that racism, white racism, can be eliminated. He believes it's a permanent, fundamental feature of American life, and it's going nowhere. Um, the most that can be hoped for, he believes, is that white people should be honest um, about their racism. And in this respect, he echoes a lot of the, the, the sentiments that you see in someone like Malcolm X or Marcus Garvey, who, both of whom saw um, the kind of honest, racist white person um, as in some ways a less threatening figure than the more duplicitous white person who hides their racism. And Thomas has been very upfront about this. And in the 1980s, when he's working in the administration, Reagan administration, and he's accused, you know, he say, they say you're working with racists, he doesn't deny that. He says at least they're honest in their racism. So I think that's the first thing is that he thinks there's black people have much more to be gained by the racial candor and racial honesty of white conservatives than they do by people who profess, you know, benign intentions or positive intentions towards black people. That's the first thing. And, the, and, the, and, and then the second thing is, goes back to this question about politics in the state versus the market. I think in the end, he believes this is a strategic alliance and that the Republican Party is much, much more likely to create the kinds of institutions, uh, the kind of society in which black people can separate um, and find their own destiny apart from white people. Uh, and so I think for him, this is a, is a kind of a, an alliance of convenience. What's interesting, though, and having said all that, is how often people like Alito, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Roberts break with Thomas when he starts venturing into this territory. So we saw this last uh, year in the, Fla uh, the Flowers versus Mississippi case, which was about uh, the role of choosing jurors, you know, all-white juries. Uh, Gorsuch is the only person who even joins Thomas's opinion. And then there's a lengthy part of the opinion where Thomas starts saying racism is endemic in jury trials. And the best hope that black people have in a jury trial is having the right to strike down white jurors, regardless of whether they're racist or not, simply because they're white. And Gorsuch flees at that very moment. And you see this over and over and over again in many decisions where his conservative brethren, they're fine with the outcome of, the, of, of his opinions. They are not happy with how he gets there. And he, bre he breaks with them on gun rights as well. Nobody joins his opinion on gun rights. Um, this happens time and time and again. Uh, so what's fascinating to me um, is how often they don't join him as opposed to how often they do join him. Last question. Does Clarence Thomas have any support in black America for his version <laughs> of conservative black nationalism? It's, a, it's an excellent question. Um, you know, most black people really don't like Clarence Thomas. 
Um, and he knows this and has talked about this. And I think he views his particular jurisprudence and philosophy as kind of a fugitive vision that he hopes one day black people will come to adopt, but he understands full well that they currently don't. However, what has been interesting to me about the response to this book, and I hear this a lot from uh, uh, younger black people, is how often they will say, when you get into these beliefs and describe what Thomas is saying, you, you sound like you're describing my father or my grandfather or my grandparents or my, or my parents. Um, and so I do think, um, even though I don't see any kind of mass movement among African-Americans towards a Clarence Thomas vision, uh, you know, jurisprudence, or towards Clarence Thomas, I should say, I think he's you know, viewed as a traitor uh, in the black community. Um, I think once you get beyond some of those reactions, uh, my sense is that there are definitely a lot of beliefs that Thomas articulates that are quite resonant in the black community, um, particularly you know, the intensity of his racial pessimism, his belief in the ineradicability of, 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 of white racism, um, some of these ideas about black self-arming. Um, you know, African-Americans are now under Trump arming themselves more than they have been before. Uh, this is very much in keeping with Thomas's view of the world. So I think, at, at, you know, in the deeper registers, uh, 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 to, to use Ellison's phrase, um, uh, I think there's more resonance there than we might think. Okay, you've convinced me. Clarence Thomas is a conservative black nationalist who believes America is a hopelessly racist country, and yet this is the man Donald Trump has called his favorite justice. What do you make of that? So this is a really tricky and, um, you know, delicate question. Um, historians have long recognized that there is a certain kind of traffic or uh, ambient fraternity, to use a phrase of Thomas's from a different context, between a certain kind of white nationalism and a certain kind of black nationalism. Uh, Marcus Garvey you know, said the, the Klansman is the best friend of the black man. Uh, again, Malcolm X sometimes spoke this way. And I think they're, they, uh, you know, in Trump's white nationalism, uh, human beings are organized into kind of racial groups. Um, and they, you know, there's a kind of ineradicable conflict between those groups. And I think in a certain way, Thomas's racial pessimism um, is very much in keeping uh, with that view um, and, and saying that black people have to kind of find their own way and their own path apart from white people, I think is a view that uh, in many ways sits quite comfortably with Donald Trump's view of the world. Corey Robin, his new book is The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. Thank you, Corey. This has been totally fascinating. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.